unfortunately it happens right at that end and there's nothing you can say when you're under the, the gun like that in a in a defensive pitch that's going to be pleasing to a client Hi, I'm Darren Woolley, founder and CEO of Trinity P3 Marketing Management Consultancy, and welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media, and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Now, if you think the pace of life is getting faster, then spare a thought for everyone working in marketing, media, and advertising. In the past two decades, all we hear is reports that CMO tenure is getting shorter and shorter with some reporting that it's now less than two years on average, and that agency tenure has headed the same way. But it's not just the duration of these relationships that's taking a toll. It's also the way they are defined. Reports of the demise of the CMO are as common as the demise of the AOR, the Agency of Record, with more advertisers moving to project-based commercial arrangements. But what's been driving these trends and what is the impact and cost to the agencies and their clients? My guest today has experience of not just launching and growing his own successful agency, but also managing one of the major holding company groups here in Canada. Please welcome to Managing Marketing, Arthur Fleischman, Group CEO and Country Manager of WPP. Welcome, Arthur. Hey, thanks, Darren. Thanks for having me. Look, uh, you know, I, I was looking at our careers and there's some parallels in that we've both been working in advertising for, for a number of decades, but particularly in the last two decades, would you agree that we, we've faced probably the biggest changes that we've ever seen? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I, I started on the client side, um, but I'm not going to tell you exactly what year, and then switched to the agency side when I moved to Canada. And uh the business is entirely different today. I wouldn't even describe what I do uh, short of the kind of client service piece as being consistent with what I did 20 years ago. And during that time, what did, what would you put, uh, if you could, put your finger on as one of the major drivers of, of the change? Wow. Um, you know, in a, in a lot of ways... I think we talk about you know the economy and uh, uh, changing skill sets, but I think probably the most dramatic is is the change in technology that has um, fragmented and fractured you know the, the mediaverse, the, the number of options. When when I started in the business, my first client was a large confectionery uh, company, and if we did a TV ad once a year and a few billboards, and you know took the client out for a beer, that was a that was a big day. <laughs> was yeah. sort of it, right? Everything was measured in GRPs, reach, and frequency. And uh, today, uh, you know, a, a a communications plan alone can have a hundred a hundred uh, items on it. But by the time you get through all the CRM and social, and uh, there's still mass media and, and so forth. So all of that fragmentation has dramatically changed the job of of communications people. Yeah. Look, I think uh, the complexity that technology's brought, you know, they often say that uh, technology makes life easier. I think it's made it a lot more complex because there's now more channels than ever before, all competing with each other for a share of a marketing budget 
that's largely stayed the same over over the last few decades, or in, in some cases shrunk in real terms. It shrinks. Yeah, no, no, for sure it has shrunk. And we went through, you know, for a little while, uh, you know, the, the understanding or the belief that you could have a, a matching luggage type communication campaign, right? We'll go off, we'll shoot a 30 second spot, we'll cut it a hundred ways and uh, and we'll just plop it everywhere but we're more sophisticated now so we know that that one piece of uh, that one piece of film is not uh, the be-all and end-all uh, so there's no there's no way production budgets can go down and yet they have <laughs> yeah. so it creates tremendous pressure on the marketer and the agency well we've been tracking uh, outputs or deliverables and back in 2005 the average brand was producing around 200 to 250 pieces of work you know, in all the forms per year. Well, sorry, two, what year was that? In 2005. Way? Okay. So in 2019, which was the last time we got a, a, a good set of data, it was 2,500 to 3,000 pieces of work. And all of this was being driven by social media and digital platforms, which consume a huge amount of content. And and have you seen what average production budgets are? Because I can tell you from my experience, and I you know I've worked with a lot of uh, large Canadian manufacturers, beer and bank and retail. Our production budget budgets have not gone up tenfold. Yeah, and and one of the reasons for that is this obsession people seem to have with the idea of working and non-working expenditure. Um, with media being working and production somehow being non-working, which is you know ridiculous. But I don't know who made that up, but, but I'd like to slap them. <laughs> well, and, and in fact, I was having a conversation with a uh, one of the let's say one of the big consulting firms that was working for a client. Uh, they were trying to introduce zero-based budgeting, and one of the things that they were working on was this idea of uh, working and non-working expenditure. And I said, well, how does that work for owned media? And they go, well, what, or shared media or earned media. And they looked at me and I said, well, none of those have significant media budgets. It's all content and well, it's all incredibly valuable. So how it, it's, it's completely out of whack. Well, and, you know, if, if we look even in the entertainment and film world, uh, if, if production cost were the sole driver, how would we have ever had Matrix or Avatar? Like, could a storyboard just be shown to people in a cinema and they would have gotten equal enjoyment out of that? Of course not, right? You know, so so I, I don't really, I don't think of the production as a non-working piece. Of course, it depends on what we're talking about here. If we're talking about, uh, you know, end of funnel digital print, so to speak, sure, that can be, you know, simple and inexpensive. But if we're talking about trying to create some sort of differentiation for your brand and some sort of attraction for the brand, how is it that the quality of the output shouldn't be uh, considered a working investment? Exactly. And because consumers, you know, it's not just technology making the channels more complex. Consumers have now got a higher expectation than ever before because they're being bombarded with large amounts of, of content that is of very high quality. Agreed. Agreed. I, I mean, I've, I've seen some recent statistics of uh, TikTok, and I, I won't admit to you what my personal TikTok uh, habits are, but I probably watch it more than one would think given my age. But I do understand that it's about 90 minutes 
I think it could be up to 90 minutes a day. And I think I heard that over 30% of the TikTok audience is now over 35, which means there's a lot of stuff on there that's keeping our attention. And, um, and I think part of that is technology. You can do a heck of a lot with an iPhone now. Uh, so the quality's gotten better. Um, you know, we're accustomed to seeing a lot more, a lot quicker. Uh, and that, that also puts a ton of pressure on brands. Yeah. So there's all these pressures and yet we're seeing the turn and the reason for the conversation is we're seeing this turnover of particularly, well, let's start with CMOs because, yeah, I think the last one I read was one of those uh, big recruitment companies was saying CMOs were turning over every 22 months. Yeah. yeah. And, and yet I know CMOs that have been in their jobs for three or four years. So clearly this and is some a for range. too long, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is a range, you know, and, <laughs> and they're picking some sort of midpoint or average, let's yeah. hope. With, uh, But, you know, we have seen CMOs not having the same sort of uh, tenure or longevity that perhaps CEOs and, and CFOs have in organizations. I understand. Yeah, no, I, I, I understand that the CMO is one of the shortest um, tenures in the C-suite. And uh, I, I did a little digging on this when I knew that uh, you were going to, you know, put me in the hot seat and I didn't want to look like a complete fool. And I, I um, looked at a couple of different sources of data. And what I saw was that the CMO relation, uh, uh, tenure, which, as you say, two to three years, is roughly the length of a uh, client agency relationship, which is now down to about two to three years. It used to be uh, about seven years when I got into the business. Um, and it's also roughly the same number of years the average executive stays at an ad agency. So wow. all three data points line up to about three years. I don't know what the magic is. I don't know if it's restlessness, and we can chat a bit about that. Uh, but what is it? What is, what is it about this three-year itch that uh, uh, that's happening across all three <laughs> parts of the relationship? The three-year itch, and it'd be interesting if you could actually determine cause and effect here. You know, because uh, I know people say to me all the time, every time the CMO changes, they say, you know, the new one seems to change agencies. And while it, that can be common occasionally, I don't think as a general rule, every CMO that comes into the role immediately pitches their agency. It actually has not been my experience, thank God. Like, in truth, uh, the agencies that I've been responsible for have been through, I can think of two or three cases where we went through four CEOs, three or four CMOs. We actually had more tenure on the brand than almost anybody in the marketing uh, function. So I don't think it's necessarily true that a CMO goes and the agency will go, uh, especially if the agency has done a good job demonstrating value across the chain. The CMO will come in if they are that truly relationship-based, you know, I hate to say it, but shame on them. Mm -hmm. uh, but a good CMO will come in and try to figure out what's working. A, a good leader will try to come in and figure out what's working, what's not working, so they don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And if, a, if an agency has done a good job building um, a deep bench with a client, they, they should really be um, at the whim of uh, one person's career change. Trinity P3. I have a theory that it's actually being caused by procurement. Do you want me to share it with you? I'd like to hear that. 
Okay. I'd like to, can, are we bashing procurement? No, or we're no, just going no. To I, I, okay. <laughs> I think I think they've been put in a position where they need to prove their value, and one of the things that they've uh, uh, latched onto is this idea that at the end of every contract period, now contracts are typically two to three years with a, a, a couple of years extension. So they could be between two years and five years, right? But as soon as you get to the end of a contract, procurement will uh, mandate or the company will mandate that you need to go to market again with a competitive tender, tenure, tender, sorry. Um, and, and people would say, well, that's fine because, you know, it's an opportunity to actually make sure that you've got the best agency in the marketplace which would be fine if it was actually fair. And we looked at the, the data available, and that's through, you know, Convergence and RECMA and, and the other, you know, sources of pitch results, including, uh, I have to, listen Moore's uh, pitch um, report each year. Yeah. But um, what we found is the incumbent has a one in four chance of actually retaining the business. And the reason for, in a competitive tenure, tender but what we found was it's because first of all the incumbents up against a few obstacles one is they have to maintain the business while they're pitching secondly they know the client and they know the limitations because they've been working on the business and thirdly they're going to the client's going to market where agencies can offer something new and different and the shiny bauble yeah yeah. No, the incumbent position is is unenviable. Uh, I didn't. I had not heard the one in four chance, but that helps support, um, you know, my notion that if you're in this situation and you're defending, generally speaking, I won't do it. Uh, you know, one of two things happens: either the client says um, we saw something that was new, fresh, and different. Uh, why don't you bring it? And it's you know, it's like one of those awful questions like, you know, have you stopped beating your dog? Like, you can't answer that, right? Like, why didn't I bring it? Either I don't have it, right? I don't have that new technology. I don't have that skill set. Or I have it and I held out on you and I never yeah. brought it to you. So you're in this unenviable uh, position. And I think, um, as, as you would probably know, the more interesting work happens a little further up the funnel if you've got good conversation with the client. And the client early on says, you know, uh, hey, agency president, I'm sort of feeling like the team in strategy isn't bringing us the the latest and greatest of this. What what do you think? And you work through it together long before you get to the divorce court. Uh, I think it's much less disruptive for the for the client relationship. It's certainly obviously much less disruptive for the agency. Uh, but unfortunately, it happens right at that end, and there's nothing you can say uh, when you're under the the gun like that in a in a defensive pitch that's going to be pleasing to a client. Well, I've, I've even uh, heard of and, and encountered situations where the incumbent was doing an incredible job, but it was mandated that they would go to pitch. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, the agency said, well, our TRR scores were in the nines, you know, the uh, the the effectively like a net promoter they're getting yeah. nine but they yeah. were still taken to tender because it was mandated that that was the process that would have to be undertaken so can i can i interrupt you can i ask and you know maybe you can't say this but i've always sensed that procurement's job like a good finance partner is to help the client get great 
value out of whatever they are procuring. I never really believed that procurement made the decision that a client is going to go with this agency or that. I always believed that the buyer of the product, the marketing team largely, or the CEO, would come in and see the value of the team, the value of you know the relationship, feel the chemistry. They would then turn to procurement and say, I want to work with Acme Advertising. Help me get the best value in this relationship. And I support that the way I, I would do it in my personal life. But I would never have a third party financial partner make all my decisions for me. I would never go to a financial partner and say, no, pick no. a house for me or and pick a you're, spouse sorry, for you're, me. Yeah, you're absolutely right on one level, which is that the marketers will invariably choose the agency they prefer to work with. And, you know, marketers will go into a tender if they've got a good relationship with their incumbent and think that the incumbent should be the best because they know them better than anyone else, but invariably are attracted to the shiny new thing, okay? So they then say to procurement, well, here's the agency we prefer to work with, the shiny new thing. And then procurement's job. Now, you've got to remember, many in procurement have to prove their value, and their value is how much that is measured on how much they can reduce the cost of any particular service. So shiny new thing says, well, we're the shiny new thing and we want to charge 120% of what you were paying. So procurement tried to negotiate with them and they go to the incumbent and the incumbents realising that they're now on a slippery slope out of there might say, well, we'll do it for 20% less than we used to do it as a way of just wanting to keep the business. Now, procurement can play 80% off 120 and get shiny new thing down under what was paid. Yeah, 100 or even less. And this is, this is the danger because, first of all, shiny new thing may have uh, proposed a whole lot of things that the, the incumbent hadn't offered previously and then not be able to deliver them because the pricing actually meant that they would have resources to be able to do that. That they won't now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Just to pick up on that before when you said as the incumbent, the most frustrating part I've seen is where the incumbent says, well, we actually did offer that to you, but you rejected it flat. Uh, Because you didn't want to pay for that. Yeah, or you didn't want to pay it or you didn't want it or you didn't think it could be integrated. But now you're telling us that, you know, but yes, now we want it for free no, and at a discount. At a discount. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And I know this isn't all that you wanted to talk, talk about today, but I do, um, I, I have heard that agencies will often undercut themselves long before they have to, right? I mean, they get into this situation and they think this decision is going to be made solely on price. So they just start dropping their price yeah. even uh, before they need to. Uh, all of this, though, does come back to the question you wanted to talk about, which was uh, the more transient nature of relationships. And I, I don't think the industry has done itself any favors by doing what we just talked about, undercutting yeah. prices. And I don't think procurement has done the industry any favors by the 12080 rule you just talked about. Because if we can't pay our people well, and believe me, those in advertising, there's maybe there was some reputation that were extraordinarily well paid. I mean, I, I live in this colossal, colossal mansion where my office is my dining room table at the moment. Uh, we're well paid, but but there are much higher paying industries. So I don't think that agencies make a inordinate, <clears throat> excuse me, profit margin 
well, it'll particularly, do. Salaries are yeah. enormous. And I think that does put a lot of pressure, particularly on young younger people who say, if I'm going to work killer hours, you're either going to pay me incredibly well, or I'm not going to get paid that great. And I'm going to have some flexibility and do, I'm going to travel or I'm going to you know do whatever the, the heck I want. And I think that all of this is related. I do believe that you know, everything we, we could talk for hours because pricing and what agencies get compensated is absolutely directly related to the tenure and the ability to keep staff, train staff, promote staff, give them a career path. If you can't give them a career path and you can't add value to their uh, professional life, they will leave. Mm. And now we're back into the cycle of chicken and egg. Did the client get dissatisfied because the staff turned over? Did the staff turn over because the client was just it, it doesn't really matter which which it is chicken or egg it's just yeah the, the, it just happened yes yeah. <laughs> the, the the problem is the outcome is still the same it's no still matter the what same. the cause and effect that's yeah. it that's it uh so that you know i think that is one of the things i think that the tenure of relationships has dropped because uh so so money i think is one of the reasons there's a lot of pressure on on budgets so clients are saying well do I really want to have a retainer with this flat fee every month when one month I may not need a lot of service and one month I may need service and I'm not really quite sure because the economy is up and down and I don't know what I'm doing with that AI thing, <laughs> you know, and yeah. this new technology. So they don't want to necessarily make these big annual, uh, you know, monthly commitments. AOR commitments. Um, but again, I, I think this somewhat exacerbates the problem because the funny thing about staff is they like to get paid every month. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's not like a machine that you can turn up, turn down. You know, I, I started my career in uh, the client side making cereal. And literally, you could let the Cocoa Pebbles machine run a little extra longer <laughs> if demand was higher, and we could make more boxes. The problem is if all the client briefs come in in, in February and nothing comes in in March, I still have the staff um, and not everyone wants to work freelance and gig and certainly not the most senior people and the most sophisticated people. So, um, you know, this, I'm not pointing fingers. I think agencies have hurt themselves by allowing their product to become commoditized by allowing their people to become commoditized. And I don't think clients are helping by running it through a procurement model that looks at the, denominator of the ROI fraction, right? A numerator is growth and the, the efficiency mm -hmm. is the denominator. And if you only look at the denominator, then it's, it's a, race to, a race to the bottom. Trinity P3. And I, I also think it's not just the commitment, but also the way that traditionally retainers were positioned that is actually, to pick up on two points that, that you've shared just now. The first is that retainers were always people-based in that you are retaining these individuals and particularly at the higher levels, the more senior levels, those individuals had names and reputations and, you know, and, and careers and, and clients were often buying into working with those teams. But then when you had any sort of churn, because you know, whether the person wanted to, to work on a different account or maybe the spend had dropped and so you, you couldn't sustain them, or the business had grown and you moved those people, there was always this sense of, but this is my team. How, what, you know, why are they turning over? Why have I got a new account director you know, every six months? 
um, was the question. And then the other question was, well, this team's retained. Yes, I get that. But are they doing enough for the money that I'm paying? So it wasn't so much that I'm paying it every month, but am I fully utilising? And, and in actual fact, in almost every case we were asked to benchmark, the client would be over utilising those resources because the fear of not utilising them meant that they were giving the agency every single job, including well, and, and do my work. PowerPoint presentation. That's it. That's it. And sometimes it's make work. Was that actually productive work? No, I think that you know maybe the answer to some of this uh, churn and burn is it sounds fairly complex and it probably is in terms of a compensation uh, plan. I think agencies do need to have some sort of base retainer because we have some base costs that have to be met. And then I think some sort of uh, performance um, uh, incentive uh, because clients work that way as well. But I like this idea of a chunk, a good chunk of the compensation being deliverable based. Mm. So yes, I know I'm going to need to have a core staff. There needs to be someone to be there when the client calls, someone who is thinking about their business, looking at the competition. That's not a big team of people. It's a no. few smart people uh, and, and an execute, you know, project manager. And then when projects ramp up, you'll pay by deliverable. It's a little bit hard to, to quantify a deliverable, but you know we're getting better at it. Uh, and then some sort of uh, uh, top up for 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 bonus, uh, but the first two are more important, frankly, than the bonus. Yeah, uh, just to change the focus a little bit, I I've also noticed that agency tenure seems to vary dramatically by category of advertiser. You know, and and consumer packaged goods companies with their discipline and their planning process often have very long-term relationships. You know, we see the, the Unilevers and the Proctors of the world having, you know, uh, agency tenures of 20 years or, or even longer. You know, I remember um, uh, the J. Walter Thompson company having craft before it was, you know, merged right. and then spun off with Heinz and all yeah. sorts. But, yeah, for, for 50 or 60 years in some markets. Yeah. So so it's interesting, that category, where you get other categories, particularly, you know, sometimes financial services, telcos, um, where there's a much higher churn of agencies. And I'm wondering whether it's something about either the demands of those categories or the culture of those categories that's driving the churn. That's oh, really interesting. I, it, it, it could be that or the business need, right? Like if there's short-term, you know, within the funnel, short-term or long-term brand building and short-term acquisition, and as the, those industries that you're talking about, packaged goods tends to be very stable. Like growth, you're never seeing 10 20% year growth in, in cereal, pasta, and detergent, right? Like those are pretty slow and steady. The deliverables are slow and steady. In things like banking, we're looking at acquisition, automotive, we're looking at acquisition um, constantly. And I think maybe that pressure on the CMO to deliver a long-term brand, but more importantly, deliver this week's results, um, uh, puts a lot of focus on, do I have the best available to me to drive this week's acquisition target? Uh, retail, you know, kind of the same way. I think most retailers didn't even have AOR relationships. They did a lot of it in-house and brought mm -hmm. in partners to help them, quote unquote, fix a problem or, or you know, um, 
optimize an opportunity. So I think maybe it could be a dynamic of the client business. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think the more that they are affected by technology, the more that they're affected by, you know, getting into new markets, it makes them a little bit more hungry for the new, the next, the never been done. Trinity P3. It could also be the company culture. You know, let's just uh, choose uh, quick service restaurants or, you know, fast food people call it, but I know the industry likes to call it quick service restaurants. They do, but it's fast um, food. So you've got, uh, you've got like the McDonald's of the world, which pretty much globally has had very strong relationships for many years with, um, you know, uh, DDB and Leo Burnett in different markets. And, and uh, I think uh, KFC traditionally had Ogilvy as a, as a long-term partner in many markets. But then in recent years, we've seen, even in those categories, we're starting to see more of this churn happening as this, uh, this thought about, you know, I'm looking for something fresh and different. And the only way to achieve that is by changing agencies. I'd, I'd love to get your perspective on... How easy is it for the agency to change when that's needed rather than changing the agency? Agency. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, I, look, and I that, know it's a tough no, one, no. but I'm, I'm really interested because I think for me that is one of the solutions is have honest conversations with your agency and see if they can change to meet your changing expectations. And I think some agencies are a lot more agile and nimble and change the services they offer. I mean, I, I look at some that are within our group that started out, you know, with sort of quirky design-driven ideas. That was kind of their thing. And today, now they have car companies and insurance companies and their ideas are more platform-based all the way down to CRM. So I think if you have a, a visionary uh, leader, I do believe it's harder in a big global network for them to to change. It's like turning, you know, a ship versus a a, a powerboat. Uh, it's certainly doable. I mean, the way we try to manage that challenge at WPP is if we see a client changing dramatically. I have different levers to pull, right? In mm -hmm. fact, I just got a call this morning, a client who needs some help with um, uh, more thought leadership type content for for a um, uh, environmental initiatives. The agency that's working with them doesn't really have that expertise, and we're not going to transform them overnight to do that. But I have a group sitting right here that I can just add three people to the table, and and we can solve that problem. So I think some agencies um, are more agile and can pivot. I think some agencies uh, have additional resources they can pull in, and I think there are some that will struggle because they do X and that's what they do best, and it's very hard to, to, to turn that around. Uh, but you asked a, a kind of a pointed question, which is, is it in the culture of the client to be a little bit more promiscuous? And I do think that's true. I do think you see McDonald's, which has had long-standing uh, relationships, although didn't they do a trade-out last year or a few years back with Wyden. And so I think everyone's under pressure and looking for the for the new, the next. Um, but no, for sure, P&G has been quite stable for many, many years. So I think there's cultural things there. Um, you know, and then there are companies that don't value the retained knowledge and history. It's always about, you know, what's in it for me today. Um, mm. I, I don't really have an opinion on 
what drives that culture. But uh, I guess it varies from company to company and category so. to category. I think so. Look, most of this conversation, we've both, I realized, entered into it on the basis of thinking that tenure and longevity is actually a benefit. So let's just explore that a little bit. You know, from, from your perspective, what do you see that, because uh, you can see the benefit for an agency of having a long-term uh, partnership with their client, yeah. but what's the, what's the benefits that you see for, for clients when they actually invest in a long-term productive relationship? Yeah, no, I think it comes in two places. So one is the one you would expect me to say, and that is if you're trying to build any semblance of brand and brand consistency, a constant churn of staff means every time someone comes on to the business, they're going to be cooking their first meal, right? Like the, every single time they're going to be trying to figure out the tone of the brand. Can I push it here? Can I push it there? And there's going to be a lot of missteps, right? So that a couple of things, either the brand becomes um, confused and messy uh, or the costs go up because it takes three or four uh, swings at bat before you, before you finally connect. And I think that's where I see the most difficulty in the variability you get you bring in teams who don't really know the company not just the brand though but even the process like oh did you realize we have an approval process that works like this oh crap no i didn't so that's going to take an extra four weeks so then the air date you know like how does that work or did you know we use this research methodology do you understand that methodology nope never used it before did you think about this? So, you know, the CEO yeah, yeah. doesn't like and, this. And every time it's like, it's like Groundhog Day. You know? and, and Arthur, it's getting worse and worse because there is more, uh, especially legislation, you know, there's, uh, there's rules that, uh, governance, that vary, yeah. governance, that, you know, privacy rules, you know, particularly for telco financial services, anywhere where you're collecting uh, uh, customer data. You know that that agencies have to be aware of, and ha- if they're not aware of it, have to learn really quickly because that's there's right. huge implications for and both that the advertiser. Knowledge, that's right. Drives either error in pharmaceutical. We do a lot of work in pharmaceutical. Uh, pharma, like those yeah. mistakes can be lethal. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, in in many ways. Yeah. Uh, so so there's you know efficiency. There's consistency of the brand. There's accuracy and risk. So I do believe that you know bringing fresh thinking onto a client business is critical. But I think there are lots of ways to do that in terms of having a fixed team that's your retained knowledge, and then rotating through some speciality, uh, getting some new perspectives on things. I mean, the one thing that's true about agencies, we are probably one of the most collaborative, creative industries out there and say what you might we do across teams bounce ideas off each other hey i got a client that's struggling with this has anyone worked on anything like that oh yeah in fact we just did a study you know so we share thinking we don't share confidential information of course but we do share approaches and thinking and um that kind of thing keeps keeps a client uh output uh fresher without having to disrupt everything by changing agencies it's interesting that you raise that because one of the other things that's impacting agency tenure is the rise of the in-house agency. And um, because you're basically recruiting people to only work on your business and your brand for long, you know, for, for a long period of time. And what they're not getting is that cross-pollination that happens naturally in agencies working across a whole range of clients in different categories. But still, you know, that there's lessons and learnings that get shared within the agency, correct? 
Yeah, and I think you know the interesting thing about an in-house agency. I do believe in a, in a large um, corporation in certain industries, banking and retail. There's absolutely a role for an in-house resource. But a client will never invest in that department the way an agency will because it's a cost center for them and it's a profit center for us. They'll never have the latest technology. They'll never have uh, the best creative people or the best strategists because inherently we, we, we do want multiple challenges for our career to grow. You'll never go from being you know, um, a, a mid-level person at an in-house agency to the CEO of a bank. So your career is inherently somewhat limited because the business they're in is not advertising. The business they're in is banking. So I think there's limits to um, the capabilities of an in-house agency. And I, I think clients are starting to see that, which isn't to say there, there isn't value there. Um, one of our businesses, Hogarth, actually helped set up in-house agencies and arm it with fantastic technology and create some of that denominator part of ROI, right? Creates the efficiency. But I, I think that clients who think their in-house agency can guide the broader thinking, I haven't, I haven't actually seen it yet. Yeah. No, we're, look, we're big um, supporters of uh, clients. If, if they have the volume of work, actually bringing in an external agency to build and manage their in-house agency for a number of reasons. One is you don't have the headcount. Secondly, the actual savings that people report are, are actually overstated because often there's many costs associated with building your own in-house agency, yes. such as exiting people yep. when you need to. Um, and thirdly, Choosing the right partner to bring that in that agency in house means that they'll also design it so you get a rotation of people, so that you're not giving you up get that the burnout. yeah, not getting burnout, but also still getting that freshness of those people coming through as they work on other clients. In well, the and rest we, of the agency. we take the headache of the career progression, right? So yeah. if somebody stays in an in-house agency for two years, they're either going to quit or they want to be promoted. If they're placed there by an agency, they could be rotated back to a different role somewhere else yeah. and rotated. And then we haven't even touched on um, the technology suite, which yeah. uh, as AI rolls out, very few companies will be able to uh, invest in the tech stack for the kinds of generative AI and, um, and technology that, that an agency network would be able to. Yes, but they'll just get it from your friends at Google and Meta. You know, they'll happily uh, hand over the technology they need. No, I'm just joking. Um, just to go back, for, so I want to share with you my perspective talking to clients that are inclined to change their agencies regularly. They will say to me, yes, we just need a whole new, fresh approach. We're very unhappy. You know, the agency doesn't seem to to understand that we need a fresh approach. So we're going to go go to market. And one of the things I point out is, first of all, you'll have the between eight weeks and, and 12 weeks of disruption as you're running the pitch. And then you'll have around six months, which luckily is called the honeymoon period. So people are inclined to overlook it. But you'll have six months of actually needing to invest around 20% more time on every meeting with the agency, because there'll be a major component where you'll be upskilling them to understanding your business in the same way on, on and on a superficial level that your incumbent understood your business. 
And, and yet well, that's a hidden cost, which no one seems to account. No, that's right. And what if you invested that time sitting with the client, uh, sorry, sitting with the agent or client, sitting with the agency saying, yeah. let, we're going to use the next 12 weeks in, in a structured, systematic way to get the fresher thinking and work we need. And yes, agency, that might be a little painful for you because we might ask you to make some big changes uh, in staff or what have you. Um, but at least the business continues along, like the basics can get done while we're making this innovation. Uh, because once a once an agency knows they're they're losing a business, how do you keep people motivated to work for ninety days? Most of them are looking for their next job, and so you, to your point, you got three or four months of subpar work while you're going through a pitch process, and then you've got subpar work while you're onboarding. Uh, the next agency. Yeah, it's just lucky that when they appoint a new agency, the endorphins are flowing and everyone's feeling loved up, and you know nothing. They the, didn't uh, notice. <laughs> yeah, but nothing the new agency can do to to ruin that, even you know missing a deadline. No. Well, you know it's funny because I've seen, um, and this isn't sour grapes, although I am prone to to devouring sour grapes. I did uh, help one of our agencies unsuccessfully pitch a piece of business. We didn't we didn't get it. It went to another agency. Their last year of work, I've seen it, and I'm I am judgmental, but in this case, I'm trying to be balanced. I don't get it. I don't understand what they got. In fact, I think their old campaign, which was not our agency, it was a, a completely different network. That work, was it great? No, but it was a consistent campaign. You knew it. It was clear. They went to this new agency. It's been a year now this summer. I don't understand what the brand is. They've had a few false starts. It's a bit of a mess. I know they've spent a fortune in production. And will they get there? Probably. The agency they picked is an excellent agency. But I don't know what's happened to the brand over the last 12 months. I, I won't believe anything that anyone tells me that it's great work because it's not. Well, that's one of the things that uh, we're very aware of is uh, the number of clients that come to us and go, we're looking for the best agency in the marketplace. And I go, no, you're looking for the right agency in the marketplace because not every client is in a position where they can actually get the best work from the best agencies. You know, and, and the number of times you know, we've seen pitches not run by us, but where they've appointed one of the you know supposedly hot creative agencies only to then part ways, you know, shorter a year than later. you expect. Yeah, yeah. Because it just didn't work. And that's why this whole process is so important to get right because losing a year in your marketing program of growing your brand is, is can be, you know, catastrophic. So what do you think the, uh, the magic is to a long, happy marriage? Oh, look, um, <laughs> and, and it's not, it's not a secret, you know, it's open communication based and 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 based on mutual respect clear definitions of roles and responsibilities and being able to reward the agency for the value perceived or other, or measured that they bring to the relationship you know it's the same as managing any relationship if if people have their their boundaries and and are able to talk about you know what they like and what they don't like what they expect and and what's required to deliver that then you're able to flex with the changes and the demands that come along. So wouldn't it be interesting if procurement departments all went to school for therapy and actually <laughs> became internal therapists? Might they not drive more efficiency, yeah. greater numerator and denominator of that ROI? Because 
you know, like you do in a relationship, it seldom breaks up because you don't like your partner's cooking. It breaks up because poor communication. You couldn't tell them that you didn't like their cooking. You couldn't tell them that you're <laughs> so actually... So you're eating bad food every <laughs> night. I'm a pescatarian and you've been serving me pork for the, for the last year. You just don't even know who I am. Uh, no, but it's, a, it's, a, it's you know, I know I'm getting a little philosophical uh, for, an, for a Friday afternoon, but it's... um. Uh, it would be interesting if as if as much attention was paid to the interrelationships between key people, client yeah. and agency, as to the cost efficiency and the the research. I mean, we spend millions on copy research, and I have never seen it, you yeah. know, correlate to, to higher sales or, or uh, Arthur. That's a whole separate conversation. Another day. Yeah, another day. Look, we've uh, we've run out of time, but this has been a fabulous conversation. I'm really uh, grateful to you for making time for having fun. a chat. That was my pleasure. Uh, look, and um, and and all the best with uh, continuing to manage uh, the WPP Group in Canada. Thank you. No, it's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate the time. I have one final question for you. You know, we've been talking about longevity of relationships. Are there any clients that you really wish didn't hang around that long? 